Hey everybody, it's John. I wanted to remind you that we do have a Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash alien minute. Over there on Patreon, Mitch and I discuss subjects concerning movies and television and just about anything else we want to talk about. So uh, if you want to come over there, you can subscribe for $2 a month for one episode or $5 a month for every episode at patreon.com forward slash alien minute. Thank you. Hello and welcome back to 007 by 7 the podcast where we are investigating the James Bond films seven minutes at a time. I'm John Engel. And I'm Mitch Bryan, and today we're looking at minutes 98 through 105, which begin with Bond binding the hands of a bad guy and end with Morzany kicking Kronstein with his poison shoe. In between, Bond and Tanya evade and destroy a Spectre helicopter and escape in a speedboat, while back at Spectre headquarters, Kleb and Kronstein receive a serious scolding from Blofeld. And today we welcome back to the show our good friend, the one and only Mr. Eric Moore, who is the host of the Effectively Speaking and the new In Character podcasts. Welcome back, Eric. Hello, hello, hello. Before the show started, we were talking a little bit about podcasts and formats and all that sort of thing. And I wanted to talk about In Character for a minute because I think it's just an epic idea, uh, especially with the ensemble movies that you've done, like The Thing and Alien, where each episode looks at one character. And I think that's a, I just want to commend you on a great idea for, for a show. Well, th- th- thank you very much. I mean, um, yeah, what we're doing at the moment with, with Alien in character and not so much with Thing in character. I mean, this is all all begat from Star Wars in character at Neo says. They're, they're the guys that started it where they would just pick a, um, you know, an obscure Star Wars character and, and, and talk about them. And then they did Indiana Jones in character. And then myself and my friend Ian... Uh, we, we we took that idea and we we did Blake Seven in character. Are, are you guys familiar with what Blake Seven is? I've I'm not. No, no. It's a classic BBC science fiction show from the late seventies. Um, started off as very hard, gritty science fiction, and then over the course of like four seasons, it become space opera, then space fantasy, and then it just became something very odd and um so we did that and uh, we do a doctor who one called doctor who adversaries where that gave us the idea of what we're doing now which is what we do is one by one we look at a adversary of each of the doctors you know starting with william hartnell the first doctor who going all the way through to the 13th and then we start go back to the beginning start all over again and we had a lot of fun doing that um and we wanted to do another show and that's when we decided to do Mad Max in character, um, which is where we looked at a character from the first Mad Max film, second, third, Fury Road, back to the beginning, etc. And we used it up. We, we, it took us over 80 episodes to feature pretty much every character we could think of in the Mad Max films. We went as, as, as obscure as you could go. The old boy at, at the beginning of Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, you know, on the little bike trying to sell Mel Gibson radioactive water. We did a whole episode on him, you know. So we don't mind going obscure. And um, that finished, so we decided to focus on another film that we enjoyed very much, and that's John Carpenter's The Thing. Um, and we're about halfway through that, but we know that that's a finite series. So we've decided to launch another one, which 
is Alien in Character, which at the moment is only up to our second episode. And same thing again. We're doing Alien, Aliens, Alien 3, Alien Resurrection, Reset, go back to the first one. And we're having a ton of fun doing them. And um, yeah, this series is going to be quite a long series, Alien in Character. Obviously, you know, Alien is going to finish first. Um, and um, yeah, no, having a great, great time doing them. We were talking about John's ABCDTOS podcast and the fact that um, John said it's sometimes so loose and he's having such a good time talking to these guys that it, it, he's not even sure what how, how it's how it's landing as a podcast. And I was saying I think that's part of the fun of the whole thing. Yeah, I, no, I was saying to you, you know, that's the feedback we get. We, 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 we get so much feedback saying that we don't mind that you go off on tangents and just start talking about something like that because that's what natural conversation is isn't it? You know, you do veer off on ten- tangents. Um, our friend Kelly finds it quite hilarious that sooner or later, Ian and I will get round to talking either about um, uh, bowel movements. Um, very often it will be about nipples. Our nipples, uh, uh, we talk about quite often, especially when we were talking about Mad Max, I must say. Um, so, yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, we go off on right old tangents, but uh, people seem to like it, you know? <laughs> Well, we always get back to Star Trek somewhere, it seems like. Yeah. All, all roads lead back to the original Star Trek. Are we going to do that today, do you think? I don't know. I don't, I'm not sure. I'm not sure how we're going to get there. I, I have, never, I, I have I never got a science know. fiction link. There is a science fiction link in the seven minutes we're going to talk about today. Oh, good. Mm. Excellent, excellent. Well, uh, before we jump into the minutes, I just was going to ask you about your, um, your relationship with From Russia With Love, where it is in your canon of uh, of bond films or on your you know is it at the top is it the bottom of the list where is it well it, if you'd gone back in time and asked me that in like the 80s i would have said it was quite low down um because um i don't know when i first saw it it, it definitely was on television and i and i looked it up the first time it was shown um here in the uk was the may bank holiday of 1976 um but it wouldn't have been then because I, I've got a vague memory of not liking From Russia With Love because I think by the time I finally did get to see it, I'd seen, you know, a lot of the later Sean Connerys. I'd seen an awful lot of the Roger Moores. And to me, James Bond films, it was all the gadgets. It was the, 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 the globe-trotting, huge, expansive stories with, you, you know, global threats, etc., etc. And then, you know... I finally saw it, and it's like, well, this is a bit different, and and, and I can remember just finding it a bit um, low-key and not what I was expecting, Um, and I don't think I properly appreciated it until, it must have been sometime in like the mid-90s when I started uh, reading the original novels. And by then I'd been reading a lot of, you know, spy thrillers, and I was getting into that, and then I got it. I understood what it was, you know, because, you know, Mitch, the, the novel is quite different to the film, isn't it? In some ways, yes. In some ways, no. We, we've been talking about that quite a lot. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but I, yeah, I, I mean, I, I hugely appreciate it more now, um, watching it now. Um, I, th- I think just as, a, um, you know, as, as a film viewer, um, I've matured enough. I don't need to have, you know, all the gadgets. I don't need to, you know, have all the slam-bam stuff, you know, to enjoy a Bond film. 
Yeah. I can appreciate a more cerebral Bond film. Well, we've given you the most explosive minutes, yeah. arguably. I was just going to so, say, this one has gunfire, grenades, helicopter crashes. Yeah. Uh, so we're a little bit more slam bang than pretty much any of the other <laughs> uh, episodes we've had, actually. I also noticed looking at these minutes that right from the get-go after Bond ties the hands of the bad guy, you know, he says, okay, don't, you know, don't run away. And it's kind of a half-assed quip. But it's a quip. I mean, it almost it it almost doesn't matter what he says as much as the fact that oh, once again James Bond is going to say something, you know, sardonic to the bad guy. And it seems like these minutes are full of that. That they've really decided at this point they're at the end of the shoot, and they're realizing okay, this is really what what this Bond is all about is trying to toss off as many of these comments as they can. Hmm. Yeah. I, I like, you know, the beginning of this seven minutes, you've got um, um, day for night shooting, which, you know, I always find quite endearing. It always takes me back to uh, Hammer films where you would have a, a midnight scene, but there's clearly shadows absolutely everywhere. Yeah, and it's it's interesting. I was looking at the old Criterion transfers back that came out on Laserdisc. And they're probably similar to what they used for VHS. And it almost looks like daytime in those. <laughs> it seems like these later versions, they've actually gone in and worked on the timing and tried to make it a little bit more believable as, as, as night. Well, this, this comes back to my you know, assertion always that, that these day for night shots are really just very early dawn. And in this particular block of seven minutes, it really works because we're going to do a cut to daytime pretty drastically. I guess we're supposed to assume he's driven quite a ways. But um, to me, it's like so drastic, right? And, and, and I think, oh, well, yeah, that's because it was just the sun was just coming up earlier. Uh, that's why the, 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 the light quality was as it was. They should have dubbed on some like bird twittering if it was, you know, daybreak. Right, they should have put right. some bird song in there somewhere, you know. I did notice once we got to the daylight scenes that that truck is bright yellow mm -hmm. and it seems to tie in with this blue and yellow color scheme we've been talking about, particularly in this half of the movie. Uh, yellow, I guess, symbolizes Tanya and blue symbolizes Bond. And so, you know, we've got a beautiful yellow truck. Mm. And, and we're in Scotland. Oh. We're not. We're, we are no longer in Turkey. I was going to, I was, I was going to say, uh, yes, as, as soon as we get that hard cut to daytime, yeah, um, that's Scotland. I, I, I've driven around the Scottish Highlands. Um, I've, I haven't been to Eastern Europe, but yeah, that's Scotland, all right. And I was keeping an eye on the weather because they shot this over many days, and they do a pretty good job of matching the sky, or at least um, they shot it enough in sequence that that the sky changes and kind of stays wherever it changes. And by the time you get to the very end of the sequence, it's, it's blue skies. Mm. So the, you know, kudos to them for managing to make that work because yeah. there's nothing worse than matching skies over days, especially I would think in Scotland. There's a few of the, you know, super high angle shots up to the helicopter where it looks like there's some rain clouds behind them. They definitely look like they're, they're threatening a little rain, but you know, I think that, that fits with what's going on at the time. Mostly, so I was gonna, yeah, I was gonna con comment on the continuity of this whole sequence. is actually pretty solid. I, I, as I was watching it closely, I was actually expecting more continuity problems than it had. They did a very good job, especially like particularly. I was impressed with the grenade, the the near miss grenade later uh, that explodes onto the windshield, 
And for some reason, when they cut to the close-up of Connery actually getting out of the truck, I expected that not to have such an accurate, you know, the splatter of explosion on the, and it matches perfectly, which means mm. makes me think that they, you know, they did the stunt first, you know, and then they were really thoughtful about. Often the, back then, I feel like they just weren't as thoughtful about this stuff. Uh, that's why I was expecting it, but in this case, they did a really good job of using, I think, the truck that had actually had the explosion next to it for Connery to get out of, and it looked great. Yeah, from what I've read, they had just terrible problems between the weather and the helicopter, you know, mechanics and having to go off and refuel and having to go get something fixed, that it really did take a long time to get all this stuff shot. And they just shot it in pieces with an eye towards trying to keep it as um, consistent as they could. Well, they certainly did that. I mean, yeah, it is consistent, like John's saying, isn't it? You know? Yeah. Um, what isn't consistent is, you know, when when Bond gets out and he's got his gun case and and um, and, and runs away. It, it, there are shots where that is very clear. That is not Sean Connery. Right. Uh, yeah, I noticed that too. Run, <laughs> I think it's Bob Simmons, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, and and it does make me wonder. You know, they Bond gets out and um, you know they continue buzzing him. Why don't they just drop a bomb on him? You know. Why are they teasing him like that? They could take him out just then and there, can't they? He's an open target now. They have that one shot of Tanya in the back in the flowers when it's driving along, and they're right above it. They couldn't have just <laughs> dropped that grenade right there, and that would have been over with. Yeah, yeah. I thought it was strange uh, that he told her to get under the truck. I thought... That's kind of dangerous. I actually think Bond is safer in a way because I don't think that's an easy shot to hit a guy running. I bet it'd be very difficult to drop that grenade on a guy that's a small target running through the field. I mean, I guess they get pretty low. I don't know. But just going back and dropping a grenade on that truck would be fairly easy, especially because it's not moving. You just hover above it. But uh, So I thought she was actually in more danger than Bond. No, I was going to say, I, I guess the guys in the helicopter haven't got guns. Is that all they've got? Is that Apparently. all they brought to yeah, the show is grenades? Yeah. Strange. They left the guns back I, on Spectre well, Island. Can we, can we talk about, I'm sure this will not hold together, or I'm completely missing something, but exactly where are these guys coming from and what is the impetus of their pursuit? Like, at some point, they found Red Grant, somebody found Red Grant on the on the train mm -hmm. and then called it in and then they s dispatched a helicopter from somewhere. And so these guys, it, it, I guess enough time has gone by that that could happen. And then when they pull up and they're waving him down or waving him to stop, do they, they know it's bond, I guess. Uh, what, what are they waving at him for? It seems as though they're like expecting him to comply with them. And uh, if it's bond, why would they think that? Why wouldn't they just come guns or grenades blazing? Uh, I don't know. I kind of just don't understand what's happening here entirely. Yeah, that's a good point. I wondered about that. That why they're what? Maybe they're just saying hello. Maybe they're just waving <laughs> at. <him. laughs> they're a friendly lot. They're a friendly lot in Scotland. They just they're, they're waving just at hello. the florist in the car. They're waving at their guy. Maybe they're you know we don't want to blow you up because you're in charge of the truck. Maybe that's who they're waving at. Maybe they you just know? wanted to stop and buy some flowers. You know, and uh, you know, and decided to drop grenades Say. when they realized they can't have any flowers. I don't know. It, it must have been pretty exciting when this came out because I was thought, well, when was the first helicopter shot used in a movie? And I guess there's a in in the late '40s there was a Son of Robin Hood movie called um, The Bandit of Sherwood Forest at Columbia, 
and I guess that's the first use of a of a helicopter shot. But I remember in They Live by Night, which was in when have I got it written down? Forty six. In fi- in forty eight was They Live by Night, and there's a there's a helicopter shot in that, and then Bridges at Tokeri has actually helicopter sequences that was 54 don't forget the hyper realistic helicopter that's hovering over the apartment building in re- in rear window oh that's right for some strange reason <laughs> it's always that? like the weirdest uh 54 yeah okay. i think rear window's 54 it's uh it's such a strange moment it's like one of the few times where you see anything outside of the like sphere or the dome that might be over uh-huh. the top of that apartment complex and i don't know why it's there and it's really corny looking but um there it is it's a helicopter in a movie before this but um they seem to be really committed to trying to top north by northwest with this stuff like you know they're conscious of it and they're like we're gonna make it even more realistic because the process shots are really just the guys in the helicopter the rest mm. of that stuff is live stunts you know yeah, yeah, because Richard Mabum, he, he was influenced by North by North by Northwest, wasn't he? Um, when yeah. he was told by the studio, you've got to come up with a, you know, a better ending than, you know, the two of them just getting off at Dijon, you know? Yeah, so he came up with two more obstacles to for them to confront, one in the air and one on the sea, which again comes back to the whole, that's very James Bond. We're going to move you through as many different environments for these action scenes as we can. So once again, this thesis that Dr. No and From Russia With Love are the two poles, you know, and then you put them together and you get you get Goldfinger. Mm. They're figuring it. They're figuring it all out. All of the elements that they're going to be chasing through all this series uh, are, are, are being found out here and in Dr. No. Yeah, I mean, I mean. You've mentioned it quite a few times on on this run of uh, from Russia with Love. Um, this, you know, the beginning of these seven minutes, you have another, you know, bizarre use of the Bond theme when Bond just turns the engine on of the truck, and we get the the raucous Bond music yeah. just for him turning the key in the ignition. It just seems very <laughs> odd now, doesn't it? It does. It does. And there's, you know, the other weird cue musically, since we're talking music, is that they they grab a piece from Dr. No and use it uh, when the helicopter is, is about to be shot down and about to explode. And I, I always wondered whether Peter Hunt did that, whether John Barry cared, whether that piece, we still aren't clear on whether that's one of the pieces that Barry orchestrated on the Dr. No soundtrack. I kind of think he maybe did. And so maybe they just figure, well, it's, you know, take that piece that we used in Dr. No and, mm. and use it here and don't have a new, a new piece written for it. Because the rest of the music in the sequence is all new stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, that 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 bit where it happens. I mean, that's when Bond has taken shelter in those rocks and he's assembling his rifle and that. And the 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 helicopter is chosen to just hover above him. And I'm watching it this time, thinking, why don't they just throw the grenade out? We know they've got at least one more grenade. They they could have him then and there. He's yeah. holding it yeah. up. He's about to do it. You know, I th- I don't know if this is. A, I I had a similar note that. I don't know if this is like movie time suspension a bit that it seemed it takes a lot longer than it really did. Like, you know what I mean? Cause they're cutting back and forth, but because it does seem as though, and maybe I'm crazy, but it does seem as though bond is waiting for him. Like he can see him well enough to wait for him to hold the grenade up, to shoot him and make sure he drops it. I don't know if that's completely insane, but I, it, the way they take time and the way he aims makes me think, 
in the way it's cut because they cut to the moment when he lifts it and that's when bond shoots it makes me feel as though he was waiting for him to hold up that grenade so that he'd drop it and blow up the helicopter it was all planned that's a very good point that i hadn't thought of i mean if the guy didn't have a grenade in his hand that's the co-pilot bond Mm -hmm. Bond would have just killed the co-pilot so you know what would bond have done next I don't know because the I, he was he kind of winged him in movie in movie you know uh, realism he just winged him so that guy was going to be able to throw the grenade anyway you know he wasn't even out completely right so uh, if we wanted him to be completely decommissioned he would have like you know wobbled and passed out but in this he's, case he's, he's like freaking the, out looking he, for the grenade so he's still conscious he, enough yeah with the pen in his teeth he still got yes. the grenade pen in his mouth <laughs> as he's looking yeah. for it. He's just gr- grinding on that. But Bond had to put that gun together as well. Yeah. So that 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 takes a little time, which we assume they must have been hovering. So I don't know whether they were worried about blowing up the Lecter. I can't. I don't know. Do they care about the Lecter device? Probably not. Is the assumption that they it took him a minute to locate him, or do we? I'm trying to think of how the sequence works. Where would they know exactly where he was right then? Or did it take him a second to locate him, and that's when he lifts the grenade? It's well, all came out it's all really the... silly. So, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah they, fl- they fly over him when he dives over the rock, and as mm-hmm. he's circling back around, he makes a, bo- a break for the other rocks right. where he's able to hide. So we assume by the time he gets dug in there and starts putting the gun together, they've come back around, spotted him, and decided let's just hover above him so he can shoot at us. <laughs> The, old, the the co-pilot with the pin in his mouth, you, you know, looking for the grenade, um, that, that does remind me of John Carpenter's The Thing, the Norwegian at the beginning who goes to throw mm-hmm. the grenade, drops yeah. it, and then looks for it just before it blows up. Yeah, that's true. Very good. Mm. Is that your science fiction connection that you, you were teasing us with? No, I've got another one. There's another one oh, coming right. up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Excellent. Great. Excellent. Great moments in timed brigade, uh, grenade explosions. You know, like typically in movies, it's lob it and it explodes on contact, right? But occasionally, and I don't, I'll be honest, I don't know how grenades work. Like there are timed grenades or they typically are timed uh, to go off after you pull the pin or they impact. You pull the, you, you pull the pin. No, it, you pull the pin and then you have a, a, a release that you're still holding on to. Right. Once you drop that then it's five seconds or 10 seconds, depending hmm. upon how, how they've been charged in uh, advance. I think I was kind of misled by RoboCop because they make it look like it's a futuristic advancement or something when he, uh, Boddicker pulls the pin and sets it on the table and it actually has a digital timer on it. Yeah, right. I, I always nice. thought, it's oh, that's a, a that's an upgrade on the grenade because in war movies, it always seems like it's just something you throw and it explodes on contact or at least like old war movies. Yeah. But then now there's the Simpsons when, uh, I forget who it is, the flashback to somebody who, he pulls the pin and he says, this one's for Johnny and, and Joe and all the other ones back at the, you know, and he holds it for so long saying he's going to kill, kill them for all these guys that it just blows them up. It blows up. Yeah. Yeah. There is, it is a double, at least the American grenades were a, a two system thing. So oh, okay. You can, so you can put the pin back in mm-hmm. as long as the clip hasn't flown off and disconnected from it. But what I want to know is can you really pull a pin with your teeth? They do it all the time. I mean, that's all, the way I've always seen it done. Well, no, they'll occasionally do a little hook. But yeah, a lot of teeth pulling grenade pins in movies for sure. I, I mean, Clarence Boddicker does it with his tongue. That's true. He does it like real seductively in <laughs> RoboCop. <laughs> I, have a, I have a fake grenade uh, that has, and that pin, like, 
you know, it's held with a wire that's then bent out on the other side of it, and it it takes some pressure to pull that thing out. I mean, it's a dummy grenade, mm-hmm. but I have, you know, I've pulled it pulled the thing apart, and I don't think I could have done that with my teeth. But who knows? I guess if you're tough, you can open a beer bottle with your oh, teeth. Oh yeah, so I guess it just appears. You can bite through open. a beer can. Yeah, it depends on who you are. I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well done, John, for doing a science fiction link. I thought I was going <laughs> to be the only one. So yeah, you got RoboCop <laughs> in. Well done. I always like to link. It's either Star Trek or RoboCop. RoboCop's one of my go-to's for sure. Right. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, it works. He drops the grenade. It blows up. Um, the helicopter blows up. Now, do you know um, the behind the scenes of this? How this was? Uh, how this happens? I know a little bit, but I'm going to let you tell us, and then uh, and then if I. If there's anything I have questions, I will ask you. All right. Okay. All right. So, yeah, the actual, when you see the the, the wide shot, the full shot of the helicopter blowing up, um, that's a model. Um, it looks good. It looks real. Uh, but it's actually a radio-controlled model. John, John Steers, the man who constructed it, called it a radio-controlled model. Uh, it was six feet long uh, with a petrol engine. And, um, but... He, he calls it a radio-controlled helicopter, but it's not how we would imagine a radio-controlled helicopter because you would imagine they had a radio-controlled thing and they could fly it around and at, at the right moment, you know, blow it up. But no, that wasn't the case. They, they, they could operate the rotors and everything by remote control, but it was actually hanging from a wire, okay? Um, and, yeah, they could operate the, the, the rotor, etc., etc. And the reason it was hanging from a wire was it was packed with explosives but for safety's sake they didn't want to trigger the explosive by radio control just in case it went off by accident you know um so basically that is a six foot helicopter um up on high you know with the sky behind it and there is a cable coming down to the main rotor and alongside that cable is the cable which would take the electricity to fire the firing mechanism. So that's how they did it. So what I'm curious about is, was there enough um, power with the rotors that it actually did hover, or is it suspended by that wire? Yeah, it's suspended by the wire. The rotors are all working, but it's not that. It's not like you know a shot bolt radio-controlled helicopter right. where you put it on the ground, somebody's got yeah. the uh, thing, you fly it up and get it to hover in a certain place, then right. press a button. No, it was far more controlled than that. Yeah, and so fairly heavy, I guess. If it was six feet yeah. with long, a, it might, with a petrol yeah. engine inside, with a little engine, yeah, yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. But I, I mean, you know, we've got a fairly big TV, and I, I was watching it on Blu-ray. You can't see the wire. It's an impeccably camouflaged wire that you cannot see it. And I tried. Believe me, I, I tried pausing and pausing, getting it to the right second, and you cannot see that wire. What's interesting is that either the DVD, you know, which would have been an earlier transfer, or the VHS, one or the other, I remember being able to see the wire. Oh, really? And and that makes me wonder whether, again, I don't think that I've ever read that they've done any wire removal or anything like that. So probably they just, the cinematographer knew how to shoot it so that the wire wouldn't appear. And in some transfers, they were careless about where the exposure was kind of like with the day for night stuff being in some versions really terrible and other versions being better that they mm-hmm. must've just been really careful to make sure that we couldn't see the wires. Cause I couldn't see it on the Blu-ray either. And I don't think John, you have 4k yet. You don't have a 4k. No, I don't have one. a 4k of this one. 
Yeah. But I wouldn't be. I do have, you know, I have 4K Empire Strikes Back, and I watched it a couple of weeks ago, and you could still see the wire on the rock that Luke lowers on Dagobah, you know, when him and uh, right. Yoda. And I thought, if anybody's going to scrub out wires, I mean, you could barely Lucas, see it. You could yeah. barely see it, but. I don't know. I mean, it's, it's I'm always uh, a little in awe of Lucas or the choices they make at Lucasfilm about what to add and change and what not to. And yeah. in this case, I swear I could see the tiny little wire, just a, a glimmer of it in that shot. I noted it at the time and thought, maybe they just don't care. I mean, it's fine. I don't know. I, I, I And, you know, that's not we're not talking about the same people here, but it's just a matter of when they go back to improve these, uh, you know, do new transfers and do upgrade effects and things it's what they care about what they don't i think wires are just something that they don't bother with i don't i don't know unless it's really bad but well somebody was really doing their job on this one to make sure that we couldn't see those yeah. those wires yeah. on the helicopters yeah. it's a it's a pretty good it's 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 cut nicely so that you just have enough time to register it and then they cut back to bond and then back to it dropping through the air and then back to bond and you don't really notice the dummy pilots in it you don't you know, it's 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 a great addition to this what will become this long list of model work in these bond yeah. films. And what makes it even more impressive is that you know when they did blow it up, um, it wasn't through you know hours and hours of staging it and prepping it and getting it ready. It literally was a case of um, John Steers was you know having his lunch. Um, in the workshop, and um, that's when old Terence came in. He's and he said, "The sky outside right now. The lighting is perfect. Let's do it now." And they rushed out on their lunch break, and just did it then and there. You know, so it's not like it spent half a day of setting it up. It's just like, right, the light's good. Let's go, and they did it just like that. That's amazing. It's like the bone into the air at two thousand and one, right? One of the only shots that's outside of a soundstage, yeah. and. I'm always still amazed by that shot, too, about how, on one hand, how elegant it is, and then there's a weird cut mm-hmm. before the big cut to the to outer space where it's like, it's almost like they didn't quite... I can't imagine. I would have thought Kubrick would have, would have got the arc perfectly and brought it back down all in one beautiful shot. No, there's definitely more than one shot involved in the bone uh, yeah. in the air. I've always But a beautiful blue sky, which I guess are hard mm-hmm. to come by in England sometimes. Very much so, yeah, yeah. But what you say, Mitch, I mean, that does... Add to it. I mean, that, that, there's a, a Jerry Anderson film, okay? I think in America it was called Doppelganger. Over here it was called Journey to the Far Side of the Sun. All right. And um, there is an incredibly impressive model sequence of this, um, of this rocket taking off. And, you know, the Century 21 effects studios were on a trading estate just outside Slough, okay? The most unscience fiction-y sort of setting that you could have and there was a playing field right next door i'll send you the photo later and and, and i can show you what i mean but they 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 filmed it with this beautiful sky behind it and it it just it it just made it because you, you know you can't fake nature like that can you was that when you said journey to the far side of the sun is roy thinnis in that movie that's the one yeah it was called doppelganger i think in america and over here it was journey to the far side of the sun i've never seen the ending of that movie because when i was a little kid i saw it on tv and it gets to this parallel universe where i mean doppelganger makes sense right where there's doubles or whatever and i was so young when i saw it i was probably like i don't know seven six seven eight 
it freaked me out. It scared me so badly that I didn't watch the end of the movie. <laughs> right. So I guess I need to go back and I just got re-traumatized thinking about it. So I need to go back and, and clean that up and, and see what happens to Roy Thinnis when he gets to the parallel world. Um, to quote Monty Python, it is a very silly place. Um, it, <laughs> it, it, it's such a silly film. Basically, they go off on this mission. They go round to the far side of the sun. They find another Earth, right? They crash land there, and it's exactly the same as our Earth, except everything is um, a mirror image. So all the writing is backwards. Everything is backwards. And they crash land on this planet... They, the people on that planet think they're the, the doppelgangers of the ones that have just taken off. Of course, they're on the other Earth. And it is all, uh -huh. inc it's all incredibly silly, um, and, but played completely straight. And, um, but yeah, yeah, it, it's fun. I think you should go back and see it, Mitch. It, it's Mirror Mirror. It is. It's from, from Star Trek. And what year do you, what, what year, any idea what year that movie was made? 69. 69, so after Star Trek. So the oh, idea is that the the planets are both orbiting the same sun, but just like mm -hmm. you can't see each other because you're orbiting at match yeah. at a match speed, yeah. and you never yeah seems, yeah seems ridiculous. Well, we got our but Star fun. Star Trek reference in. Thank, yeah, thank you, Mitch. And lots of science fiction for this episode. That's <laughs> this is great. Makes up for the lack of it within the actual movie. You know, we're missing <laughs> right. it from Doctor No. So we got to have something in here. Well. We should talk about the helicopter crash just for a minute. I, mm. I, I, Eric, you've read about that, I assume. Uh, what the real hel the real helicopter crash with no. Young and everybody. So uh, apparently, because of weather conditions and this, that, and the other, it was cloudy on one side of the lake, and Young wanted to go look on the other side of the uh, lake. Uh, at this this being as they were arriving to get ready to do the boat sequence, which is kind of where we're, where we're headed for now in, in the minutes. And I guess the helicopter took off. It went up about 30 feet, and all of a sudden the engine gave. And so Terrence Young and the helicopter pilot are in there. The camera's in there. The pilot angles it at 90 degrees, um, which is what you're supposed to do, I guess, when you're going to crash into the water so that it'll cut the, it'll make the rotors go away and nobody mm -hmm. gets killed. Anyway, it went in and it sunk like 35, 40 feet. And apparently then John Steers jumped in and one other guy jumped in. I assume they have wetsuits. I assume they have goggles because Steers said he got down and he could see them in the in the perspex Good God. glass. And um, Young couldn't get out of the door because the camera was blocking it. So he was kicking at the perspex and he finally kicked it and broke it. And he got out and the Steers grabbed him and then the guy that was with Steers grabbed the pilot and they... They made it up to the top, and apparently um, the fallout of this is as, as interesting as the crash itself because, one, John Steers said the helicopter pilot, once they got him back to shore, just walked away, and Steers said he never saw him again in his life. So I don't know what was up with that. That's Steers' account. Young says that um, his leg was slightly cut up from, from getting out through the perspex, but otherwise he was fine. And that when diving teams went back to recover it, he said they all cut their fingers on the perspex, that, that he was just lucky that he made it out, out without any other injury. And he continued shooting that afternoon. So I guess that's what happens when you're a tank commander. You know, <laughs> what's a little water after you've faced Rommel? But, uh, yeah, it's, it was, it's pretty hairy. And it, it, I guess it, it just 
sunk like a rock. Wow. You know, he carried on that afternoon after a crash like that. You reminded me of, I think it was sometime in the 60s, there was an air show somewhere here in England, and, you know, there was a very bad crash, you know, and people died, and uh, it carried on. The, the, the ambulance came, took the people away. No, no, now, that, that there would be an investigation, everything would be shut down, blah, blah, blah. no more planes flying until the cause has been found. But they carried on with the air show. Once the people had been ferried away, they just carried on with the air show. That's very wow. English, isn't it? <laughs> Stiff on. upper lip and all that, yes, yeah. yes. <laughs> yeah. Really uh, took one on the wow. chin there, those folks, but we're, yeah. yeah. God, <laughs> amazing. Uh so can, we should have we we have to discuss this skipper's hat that um, <laughs> I want that hat. He, he he gets out of the truck and he's got his hat on. We don't know where he found it. We don't know where it came from. But he's got his his. Is it a Q branch? Hat. Was it in the the Q? Send it with him. Just one of the things we didn't see. Maybe I don't know. Uh, yeah, is our bad guy both a captain? And a florist? Like, was he gonna be the one who'd be driving the boat for Red Grant when they when they got to the? Oh boat? yeah, D- that's it. That's got to be it. That's the best explanation. Because they were on, they were going to this boat anyway. Somebody's gonna have to have the skipper's hat when they get on the boat. <laughs> so man, he would be remiss not to have a skipper's hat and not hat leave in his it truck. on the boat. Have it in the truck, you know? Yeah, no, so you gotta you know, have it. Yeah, yeah. Because somebody yeah. might take it. Yeah, no, you gotta have it with you just to make sure that you have the skipper's hat. Otherwise, who's gonna know who the skipper is? When they're driving the boat, I mean. Do you think the the flowers on the truck were a present for Red Grant as a well done for killing James Bond? (laughs) That's a lot of flowers. That's a lot of flowers. Well, James Bond's a big super spy, you know? Yeah, I don't know. Captain Nash had a thing for flowers. Uh, Red Grant has a thing for flowers. How would Red Grant, would it have been like, you know, when Johnny Fontaine sends the flowers to Don Corleone for getting him the part in the movie and... (laughs) It's like that's huge bouquet. It's for Don Quirley. Like once again, he goes, put them over there. Just put them. Job well done, Red Grant. We have a whole truck full of flowers. <laughs> yeah, for just, you, just, just to put them over you. there. Just get them out of here. <laughs> yeah, we wondered whether the guy was a florist, whether he stole the truck from a florist. We we still don't understand why the flowers are there, except of course Terrence Young probably said, "Oh, throw it, fill it full of flowers. It'll look beautiful." I can yeah. imagine. <laughs> why? Okay, so maybe I'm thick here but why does he even bring this guy so he needs this guy we don't get are we not getting the moments where he's like tell us how to get to where you're going is that why he brings them along to make sure they get to where the escape route follow the escape route accurately because i i kind of wondered when he, he knocks them out and then he puts them in the truck and then he brings them along all the way onto the boat and then throws them off like why does he not leave them behind initially why does he not leave them behind in the truck when they get on the boat I think it's to stop him, you know, legging it to a telephone to, oh, okay. to warn or something like that. If, 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 if they chuck him out once they're on the water, that's going to take a long time for him to swim back and then find a phone. You know? Good point. Because he could just yeah. go phone another helicopter, call in another helicopter, and this time maybe they'll bring a gun and then <laughs> Bond's actually in trouble. Yeah. Right. yeah. So, he, so it's, they should have slit the tires while they were at it. You know, so that once he got back, yeah. he still couldn't get in the truck and drive somewhere. But we can only do so much. At least yeah. Bond didn't kill him. That's and what I find very odd now, you know, after watching the Daniel Craig films, that John, James Bond, um, you know, is quite polite to him. 
He says, can you come over here, please? And he says, uh, do you swim? Can you swim? Uh, mind the step, he says, just before he chucks him out. The, the bond, a, a modern Bond would just kill him. You know, he's one of the enemy. But, you know, he's actually quite polite, isn't he? I was going to say, why, why do you think um, when Bond, you know, throws him off the boat, why is that speeded up slightly? I was going to ask you about that, too. Ah. I noticed it as well. So I think it, it has to be to just to give it a little extra oomph. I'm sure that, that Peter Hunt was like, why don't we just, you know, give it a little kick in the optical printer and and make it more forceful? Because maybe in, in real speed, it looked a little too much like the guy jumped rather than got pushed. That's my guess. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. Um... I, I'm, I'm not here for the boat chase thing, but did you see about how Richard's, you know, inspiration for what will be coming up in your next seven minutes was from a, a script that he had done for another film? Yeah, I did, and I've never seen that movie. It's the one that he did with Terrence Young, right? And that he, that and uh, who else was in it? Somebody else. Was Alan in Ladd. It too. Uh, uh, Alan Ladd was the star. Um, it was called The Red Beret. And, uh, yeah, Terence Young directed it. Cubby Broccoli produced it. And, yeah, there's a sequence in that where Alan Ladd is trapped in a minefield and they use a bazooka to set off all the mines in succession, which then blasts a, a safe way out of it. And, and it's the same sort of thing which Bond is, you know, spoilers, shortly going to mm -hmm. be doing with a flare gun to set all those barrels off. Young must have been good friends with Alan Ladd or something because, you know, then he also did that lousy uh, ancient world movie with Alan Ladd. I think it's Duel of the Titans or Duel of something that Terrence Young produced and, and co-directed in, in Italy with an, an aging Alan Ladd as, a, as Horatio, the Roman warrior. So there must have been some kind of relationship there. Mm, mm. Well, you know, Bond was polite to the bad guy, but he's not very polite to Tanya all through these minutes. <laughs> I just wanted to like kind of drop back and look at all of the ways that he um, bosses her around mm. and that she has gone from never leave me to stay with me initially, which which good for her. At least she's not going to let him push her around, but he does push her around. He still he still is ordering her around all through this. And it's it's like I, I don't I can't tell whether he really cares about keeping her along for the ride or not. No, and all he needed to do was do a, you know, get the charts like that. You know, it was just short of snapping his fingers when he's ordering yeah. her away. Yeah, and she seems to be uh, very accommodating. She's even amused by him throwing the guy off the side of the boat. So either she's not thinking this through or she's thinking the long game. And what she's really thinking about is, I can't wait to ditch this bozo once we get to Venice and and move on with my life. <laughs> It could be that. She could be just being, you know, she's got her eyes on the hat. Maybe she wants to go off with the hat when they get to Venice. That's true. That's true. <laughs> well, we do get a, um, we should jump to, to the Spectre yacht for a minute, I guess. That's kind of where, where we, we wind up with the end of this, unless there's anything else that we have to say about these minutes. Uh, we're back on the yacht. And once again, we get an, another trope that is going to appear again and again through these movies, which is... The bad guy calls the henchmen in and reprimands them. And one henchman thinks that they're going to get it. And instead, the other one gets it. Mm -hmm. But this is a long line of henchmen being eliminated for bad performance in the Spectre organization. 
Yeah, and this is this is you know stripped right down, isn't it? I mean, this is a, a kick to the heel. Whereas you know, future films, you're going down a sliding chute into a shark tank or whatever. You know, mm. um, yeah. I'm this first shot when we, when you see Blofeld. Um, I saw that you know you see the back of his head, and you see that Blofeld's got hair, and this is the last time that you see Blofeld with hair until Charles Gray turns up yeah. in Diamonds Are Forever. Yeah, that's true. Mm. Yeah, and he was going to have hair, I guess, before they replaced him. The guy who was going to do it in You Only Live Twice, who they decided was too much like a Santa Claus because he had hair and a beard. And so they fired him and they put Donald Pleasance in with his cracked egg look. <laughs> cracked so egg. They still don't know what Bl- Blofeld's going to look like. I guess in Thunderball, we can't, it's the same actor. But we, they really disguise him in Thunderball in Shadows, so we have no idea whether he has hair or not. Is that right? Is that right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. And, of course, I, I said on your Facebook page, you know, when you were discussing old Vladik, um, I adore Vladik, you know. Um, you know, I grew up, you, you know, in, in the early 70s. Uh, he was a mainstay of all the, the, the British uh, ITC spy thriller shows um if you wanted a slightly dodgy looking eastern european spy call for vladik he was the go-to guy you know um and um you know as i said on your facebook page he, he he was in a jerry anderson show called ufo and uh the premise of that show is um you know earth is being uh attacked by ufos nobody knows about it it's all kept hush hush because they don't want the people to panic but you've got this secret organization called shadow who have a, a base on the moon uh, you know that sent out fighters to try and intercept the inter- that the ufos before they reach the earth and then you've got this whole system of tanks and vehicles and submarines you know on earth to combat them and uh, yeah they have a secret base underneath a film studio that's where they're based. Great cost cutting from Jerry Anderson because you know it's it's it. They've got a hidden underground base in a film studios, and they use the film studios, you know, <laughs> where they were making it. Um, but yeah, the Doctor Vladik plays the Doctor in that, the head Doctor, and he's a good guy for once. He's a good guy in it, and he is creepier than the aliens in that show. You know, he he's he's just amazing. I I loved old Vladik. Yeah, he's great. He's in The Wind and the Lion, the John Milius movie, and mm-hmm. I think Milius used him in something else too. Maybe he's in Red Dawn or there's another Milius movie that he that he shows up in as well. But yeah, he was he was an amazing presence. Do you know much about him? Have you spoken much about the 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 actual man himself? We we, we haven't talked much about him. Um I know that he he wasn't initially he he was an actor, right? And before he came to England, and then he couldn't get any jobs working until somebody, somebody helped him along, right? It's terrible. I mean, yes. I mean, you know, during the war, I mean, he he worked with the Polish resistance. He he was you know imprisoned and escaped twice, and then you know after the war emigrated to England, but his papers uh, it wouldn't allow him to do any jobs other than the most menial work. Um, but eventually, yeah, he got into back into acting. Yeah, yeah. It's amazing how many of the guys involved in all of these movies really saw serious action in World War II. Mm. You know, between Ken Adam as a fighter pilot and Terrence Young as a tanker, and this guy as a member of the underground. It, I don't know. It, it. There's something about those guys 
in these early Bond films, they bring some edge to it mm. that, that they you just don't see now in the days of, you know, worlds of corporate cinema and just, I don't know, the, what forged those men is different than what forges men today. Absolutely, yeah. But old Kronstein there, he's blaming Kleb, isn't he? You know, according <laughs> to him, it's her men that are the problem, not his plan. It was an impeccable plan, according to Kronstein. The man who cannot be beaten on the chessboard, and so he thinks he's he thinks he's going to get uh, Rosa Kleb sacrificed so he can get his checkmate, but it's not going to work out that he, way. He absolutely he is so smug when when he says who is Bond compared to Kronstein, and he smugly turns to Blofeld. He thinks you know when old General Gogol is just about to come in. That keeps throwing me out, by the way, when I watch, I know, I know. When I watch this. It? You know, it's like no, that's General Gogol. Um, when he comes in, he he thinks. Kleb's going to get it, doesn't he? Yeah, I wonder if he if he had said, "What's uh, what's who's James Bond compared to Blofeld or compared to Spectre?" But instead, he says, "Compared to Kronstein." It's like, yeah. oh man, talks about himself in the third person. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's always a bad sign. Not isn't good. It? Not no good. matter who it is, whether it's a politician. Would you ever do that, Mitch? It, would you ever do no. that, John? Would you ever talk about yourself in the third person? Oh, Why never, would you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I know former you know, baseball great Ricky Henderson was famous for doing that. But it oh, was really? Oh, it was. Sports. Yeah, but it was great. He'd be like, Ricky Henderson's going to steal that base. Ricky Henderson, every game is going to steal that base. He would do that in interviews all the time, but it was great. Like nobody ever Madness. thought, nobody ever once thought with Ricky Henderson that it it was like arrogant. It was like appropriate somehow for him. Sort of like how Muhammad Ali. I don't remember Muhammad Ali ever speaking about himself in the third person. Uh, but it, Ricky Henderson's shtick was pretty much what Muhammad Ali was doing, and everybody lo- kind of loved it. But uh, <laughs> that's. One of the I few can't remember can when it. I, I can't remember when I watched this movie for the first time, whether I actually thought that Cleb was in trouble. I mean, do we ever? Do we really think that 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 it might really be her fault? Yeah, I think that we're just. I think that we're led to believe by the editing. Yes, <laughs> that, absolutely. This could really happen. So I, if I'm if I'm caught up in the moment, yeah. But uh, then when it when it doesn't happen, then you go, oh yeah, okay, that she wasn't going to be the one. I, I, I think you're led to believe it because, you know, you've got Kronstein bragging about himself um, and you've got a very sweaty Kleb looking incredibly nervous. I mean, we're led to believe that she's just about to die. It's a great setup for uh, the fact that she will have a, a poison shoe blade later on, isn't mm. it? I mean, it's so we've not seen it before in the movie and it's so matter of fact the way it's done. And you think, oh, well, that's. That's General Gogol's thing, right? But it's not. It's really an amazing setup for something that's still to come, which got to give the filmmakers credit for hiding exposition that way, hiding a setup that way. It's really wonderful. Mm -hmm. It's a great invention. I mean, of course, it's not in the book, is it? Um, You know, this, this knife shoe thing. I don't know why, but I thought it was. Yeah, because no, that's well, what. Because she she gets him with it at the end. And no, bond. no, no. That's poison knitting needles, isn't it? Oh, in you're the right. Book? It's, the, it's knitting needles. You're right. Yeah, it's the knitting needles. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And that's in well Doctor No. Well done, Aaron. Wait, is that in Doctor No? Which book are we talking about now? That she in from Russia with love. No, Doctor No is he's recovering from it. Right. In right. Dr. Okay. No, he's right. Recovering right, right. from it. That's right. Because at the end of the book, he he passes out, and it's like a cliffhanger ending to that mm-hmm. book, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. 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 And it, it allowed people to speculate on whether Fleming was through with James Bond. Mm. But 
Monica Germana tells us that earlier in the series that uh, he'd already started writing on Dr. No, so it was all just a a ploy. Ah, uh, right. I guess it's like Sherlock Holmes going off the cliff, right? Right. <laughs> Except that uh, Doyle actually was trying to. Well, I think, right. and I think Fleming is also kind of getting tired of it. There's mm-hmm. no doubt about it. I'm, that's my thesis with the book of From Russia with Love. You don't see James Bond for, you know, however many chapters because he'd really rather not write about James Bond. <laughs> he'd rather write about everybody else. It is astonishing when I, you know, finally read the book that it's almost half the book before Bond ever appears and you know everything about Red Grant, but then he just disappears until almost yeah. the end, you know? Yeah, it's amazing. It's really interesting. I, you know, it's funny, you were talking about this as, as kind of the low-key movie, and then you said you gained some respect for it when you read the books. I know that you've, you think highly of Moonraker, and that's a similar kind of situation where mm. the book is really wonderfully low-key. It's still, it's, I think it may be one of my two or three favorite Bond books, but it doesn't have the, it's certainly, it's certainly not, uh, not the movie of Moonraker. Do you, how are you with the idea that, you know, the next Bond, whoever it may be, you know, they do Moonraker, the book, rather than a retread of the film. I think that would be great. I, I think that I was kind of sad with, uh, well, I won't say it. There, there's some things that, that show up in the new Bond film that um, are from the books that they're kind of getting the very last things that they can find and they're not really exploited. And so I think it would be really cool to go back to some of the books and mm. exploit some of the ideas that we haven't got to really see realized. What about the idea of they just, you know, do do the books? You know, they do Dr. No again. They do Goldfinger again. They the, live and let die. They, they make the books and don't reference the films, just brand new versions of the books. Well... That's an interesting idea. I would ask back to you, would they do the books as period films or would they update them? You would have to have all sorts of disclaimers if you're going to make the books because they are, you know, to use the cliche term, you know, a product of their time. I mean, some of the Ian Fleming's writing, some of his views on certain things, um, you couldn't do that now, I don't think, could you? I don't no. think we're going to see Live and Let Die done. Oh, no, you're not no. going to see any of the. I mean, this this doesn't sound like this sounds like a fun idea for us to geek out about, and not a money making idea for them to actually. Uh, well, I, I, mean, I don't. I don't think most people want to see that. Uh, I don't know. They want to see new Bond. I, I think, I think but, too that the fact that the books have fallen into public domain in certain countries, including Canada, probably makes. Um, you know, Eon Productions determined to own everything that they possibly can, and I don't think they would probably want to go back to a public domain source. No. I don't know. And that's why you can listen to audiobooks of the Bond books that are, you know, recorded in Canada. You can you can get the books online, uh, both print and audio, because it's public domain there. But I would I would love to see an um, accurate version of Moonraker. I think mm. that would be pretty, pretty yeah. exciting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. At least at least see Gala Brand as a character in some Bond film somewhere because she's she's pretty great. You guys got to come to England and you know come down and visit me here down in Kent, and I'll take you to all those places. We can go around reading the book. All those places are there. I'll take you there. All right. All right. All right. It's a date. That sounds, sounds really great. good. Yeah. Sounds really good. Any other thoughts, Eric? Uh, one more thing. 
Um, you know, during this recording, um, we have talked science fiction. We've talked Empire Strikes Back, Star Trek, Robocop, UFO. But we haven't talked about the science fiction that I initially set out to say. We've touched on subjects, but my one science fiction snippet that I've, I have left is that the, the effect shot of the blowing up helicopter, an alternative angle of that was reused or used... Um, in 1971 in Doctor Who. Really? Yeah. A different angle shot of the exploding helicopter uh, was used in a uh, story called The Demons, a John Pertwee Doctor Who from 1971, which has a helicopter featured, and there's, a, there's an energy barrier around this village in southwest England, and uh, a helicopter tries to fly through it and explodes, Right. And they use for the explosion an alternative angle shot of the exploding helicopter in From Russia With Love. The problem is, when it does blow up, it, the one that they used for most of the filming bore no resemblance to the effect shot. I think, <laughs> I think it's a military grey. It's still a two-seater <laughs> helicopter, but I think it's military grey. But for that split second, when it blows up, we're back to Scotland and the yellow one from, from Russia with love. Right, because the incredible heat of the explosion <laughs> turned the metal. I don't know. I was trying to help him out, but yeah, that's hilarious. So it was in color. So this was this Doctor Who with John Pertwee. These were all in color. At yes. Point, is that right? Yes. Yes. And were yeah. they shot on video or on film? No, on film. Both indoors and outside. Indoor and no, out, in, indoors. Back then, the BBC was filming uh, indoors on video. Yeah. Location work was all on film. Wow, that's really interesting. I have one more science fiction question for you. Oh, go on. So, do you know the movie These Are the Damned? Yes, yeah, that's a Hammer film, Oliver Reed. It is, Oliver Reed, and it's, a, it's, a, it's this weird mashup of like a biker movie yep. and a kind of quartermass sort of thing. Yep. And offhand, do you, do you know where, it was, where that was shot? I think it was in Weymouth. I think that makes sense. In, in the did maybe. S- south coast of Dorset, I think it is, yeah. Weymouth, yeah. Okay. Why? Right. I don't know. I, you got me thinking about Kent and Moonraker, and I was, couldn't remember where where These of the Damned was filmed. And I, and, but you're right. When you say Weymouth, I remember now reading reading that. That sounds, that sounds about right. Well, you, do, you, do, you, do you know the film? Yeah, 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 yeah. It, it's so <laughs> underrated, and it's, it's such a bleak film as well. I, I wasn't prepared for just what a downer it is. Of a film, yeah, it is a yeah, it's amazing. I that's kind of what I was wanting to get your impression of it, but yeah, it's one of those movies that I feel like uh, more people need to see. I mean, people it is don't, on that Hammer box. Set, it, I was just going to ask if it's in that Hammer box that mm-hmm, I get, so, that I scored for twenty bucks somehow. Yeah, people, yeah. people that weird don't time. talk about it. <laughs> Yeah, 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 because it's so tonally odd. I think is part of why, and maybe because nobody cares that McDonald carries in a movie. Because I, I understand that, but Oliver Reed's great in it. But it is just the most schizophrenic, strange movie. It it deserves points for just being so. You know, I would think maybe there's there are Doctor Who fans out there who might, or Quatermass fans out there who might definitely. Really like yeah, it. yeah. If you're a Quatermass fan, yeah. You, you would like that film, yeah. We were talking before recording, Mitch, about you know how in the UK everything's quite accessible, you know, because England is so small. If you and John did come down to Kent, you could get to that location within about two hours, two and a half hours. All right, so I'll take you down there as well. We'll have we'll have fish and so chips on places. the beach. 
All right. That would be, that that would be magnificent. <laughs> well, thank you, Eric, for joining us. Thanks for all the great podcasting that you do on, oh, you. on other subjects. And uh, we really appreciate you being our resident special effects expert here on 007 by 7. Well, thank you for having me. Um, yeah, yeah. Terrific fun. Thank you very much. All right. Well, that's going to do it for this week on 007 by 7. Uh, make sure to visit us at, on Twitter at uh, 007 by 7 podcast. Or come over to our Facebook page and uh, chat us up about whatever you want to talk to us about, Bond-wise or otherwise. We'll see you next time. Bye, everybody.